Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am a doctoral candidate in the Department of English at the University of Washington, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Asian American Studies, as we know, emerged from the Third World Movement in the 1960s, and likewise is a fundamentally interdisciplinary social project. So this podcast features books on anthropology, history, literature, art, political science, and sociology. All that help us understand the varied experience of Asian Americans living in or interacting with the United States. Today we are joined by Dr. Julia Lee, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Lee earned her Ph.D. in American Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles, and taught for six years as an assistant professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Today we will discuss Dr. Lee's latest book, Interracial Encounters, Reciprocal Representations in African and Asian American Literatures, 1896 to 1937, which was published by New York University Press in October of 2011. Lee's book investigates the overlapping of African-American and Asian-American literature. She she focuses on the diverse attitudes that Blacks and Asian-Americans had towards each other uh, and pushes against dominant conceptions of these groups as either totally cooperative or as totally antagonistic. Lee also explores how American nationalism was produced through this comparison, and shows how Afro-Asian representations allowed readers and writers to consider alliances outside of the American nation-state. Julia, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Christopher. I wonder if you could begin the interview by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and the intellectual trajectory that brought you to write uh, your book, Interracial Encounters. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, The idea for the book actually... um, sort of the very seed for it was a a personal experience I had in 1992. And I'm sure many of your listeners will know 1992 was the year of the Los Mm -hmm. Angeles uprising. Um, And that the first day of the uprising was also the day that I became a U.S. citizen. So my memories of taking the oath of citizenship um, have very much in the background the images coming out of Los Angeles at that time, in particular the images of um, Korean shopkeepers with you know, um, weapons trying to guard their uh, storefronts and this and this sort of media narrative of African-American looters, black looters, um, you know, um, in an antagonistic relationship with Korean shopkeepers. Mm-hmm. So that is something that has stayed with me um, for, you know, stayed with me for years. And then when I was in graduate school, um, I took a class actually with Professor Valerie Smith, um, at, who was at UCLA at the time, but is now at Princeton University. And it looked at um, early 20th century African-American migration narrative. And this was a time period that I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and I didn't know anything about in terms of Asian-American literature, because so much of what we think of as Asian-American cultural production is post-1960s, right, post-civil um, rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that got me, also started me thinking um, along lines I hadn't thought of before. And then actually I was sitting in the library reading the court case Plessy versus Ferguson, which um, I talk about extensively in the book. 
And I was shocked um, to read in this case about um, Jim Crow segregation. There are several prominent mentions of, of the Chinese. And so those three things, I mean, you know, there's no clean narrative, obviously, no clean trajectory. But I sort of look at those three moments as kind of important in sort of bringing together all of the ideas that the book eventually uh, encompassed. Um, and as you said, I'm, I'm currently a professor of Asian American studies here at, at Irvine, uh, but my research interests are very much in um, Asian American literature and culture, African American literature and culture, and sort of early 20th century American lit and culture more generally. Um, so it, it does seem a bit more, uh, a bit easier nowadays to do, uh, I guess, what's called comparative race analysis. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for you? Um, I guess the early 2000s, um, kind of like, you know, putting this to your committee, like I want to study both African-American and Asian-American literature, uh, when, especially when everything's so set up to kind of separate these two fields. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, actually, um, just in terms of the bureaucracy to do my exams, it was not possible. At UCLA at the time, I think things have changed now, thankfully. Um, you had, uh, for your qualifying exams, you had to choose certain fields that you, you know, um, that you would read the list for and then you would be examined in. Um, but you couldn't choose two ethnic lit fields. You had to choose one ethnic lit field, so Asian American lit, and then two period fields. Um, and so from the very, you know, from the very sort of start, there was this kind of, and it wasn't that any individual was resistant to it. It was just these were the rules that had been laid down by the, the department and the, and the university. And so, you know, those kinds of small things, like no one had ever thought, well, maybe someone would want to look at both African-American literature and Asian-American literature or, you know, Chicano, Chicano literature and African-American literature. Um, so it was just this kind of um, institutional, you know, lag, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, you know, sort of in the mid 2000s, a whole um, series of books came out that looked at this issue, you know, and I consider myself very much in conversation with those books and those scholars, and that made it easier, right? That there were more, it was a more visible sort of um, conversation, or it was a conversation that was happening and that people were acknowledging. Um, but at the very beginning, it was sort of, you know, I also got questions as a graduate student of, you know, how are you going to market yourself with this kind of uh, dissertation or book? So um, I think now it is much easier, but it certainly there was certainly it is easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, <laughs> um, but there was a, a lot of resistance, I think, at the at, certainly when I was a graduate student, you know, 10 or 12 or 13 years ago at this mm. point. So. Uh, on that note, why, why Afro-Asian? Can you tell the audience about uh, the discourse of comparative race studies, uh, how it formed and what it hopes to yield and how you kind of uh, took it on? Yeah, well, I think it comes out of a sense, um, you know, kind of resistance to sort of if you look at sort of the history of, um, of the way race has been studied, it's often been sort of this white, you know, other paradigm, right, that um, you know, racial or ethnic minorities are constantly measuring themselves against some kind of white, um, monolithic kind of European American, you know, ideal. And, you know, that's an important kind of, I think that is an important kind of study. There's still lots of, lots of people who are interested in that, but that ends up kind of reifying this idea of whiteness as being just sort of, um, like I said, monolithic, um, not at all diverse, right? This kind of, it's just this thing that we don't have to think that that much about. And I think um, what I hope I'm doing, and, and I know other scholars are doing, is to sort of 
understand that race, racial identity, racial subject formation doesn't just come out of a relationship between a white dominant, you know, majority, that actually your racial identity is, um, is contextual, you know, with lots of different races around you or class issues or gender or sexuality, that all of these things come into play. So I think, um, you know, we're looking, scholars are looking at sort of a more multiplicitous idea of racial identity that isn't just about, you know, black, white, or white other, um, but is looking at it sort of in a more, much more horizontal, right, contextual fashion than before. Um, And so I think that's where a lot of, and, you know, you, you see it, um, you see a lot of scholars working on Afro-Asian encounters. You see a lot of, you know, more scholars working on uh, Latino, Asian, right, Black, Latino, Native American. I mean, so it's it's actually a very exciting time, I think, because, you know, this hasn't been something that people have looked at generally in much detail in the past. And so there's a lot of ground to be covered still, I think, um, by by doing this kind of comparative analysis. You have a very specific uh, time period that you're looking at, too. Yes, yes. Uh, you begin in, in 1896, uh, yes. cross past World War One, and then end up in the late 1930s. That's correct. Uh, and it feels like a cross racial, I guess, or comparative race project is a bit um, easier to handle when you have a specific time period, you know, because then you're talking about movements, you're talking about, you know, the train, as you talk about quite a lot. Right. Uh, how, how does this historical period reveal? Uh, what does it reveal about Afro-Asian discourse? And particularly, how can it maybe help us understand our own time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, I'll just comment on the in you know the historical period. I mean, part of what my argument is in the book, and I really believe this, is um, you can't make um, grand statements or grand narratives about interracial relations that that span a century, right? That mm. um, you know, sort of uh, political pressures, economic uh, failures, uh, the U.S.'s role within sort of. Um, role within imperialism, certainly in the late 19th and early 20th century, colonialism, that all of these things impact how uh, different racial communities view themselves and then view each other. So I was, I wanted to be very, very clear in the book that um, this time period is particularly important because it was, you know, post-reconstruction um, and with the arrival of the first Chinese uh, immigrants or migrants into the United States. It was a time when the ideas of American identity and citizenship were very much in flux mm. for everybody, not just for Asians and, and for African Americans. Um, and that in particular, these two figures seem to form some kind of uh, limit to what could be imagined, to what American identity could be imagined to be. Um, and so, you know, that, that there is a tremendous amount of popular legislative, um, you know, cultural discourse that is constantly sort of looking at mainstream discourse that's constantly comparing uh, Africans and Asians to each other um, and who is more worthy of inclusion into the U.S. for whatever reason and who should be left out for whatever reason. So it's a time period when questions of citizenship and belonging are really, really um are really alive and very much the source of a tremendous amount of anxiety within the nation. And then these two figures in particular emerge as being kind of um, the polar opposites, right? Or these two sort of uh, uh, sort of figures for that, for imagining that identity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's why, you know, if you look, and there isn't a tremendous amount of literature out there, but if you look, part of what motivates the book is why do Asian characters show up in African-American novels or African-American literary works and vice versa? And I, I argue that's part of the reason why, right, that these that you can't formulate sort of what it means to be black in the early 20th century without also thinking about, well, how does the Asian triangulate that identity um, as well? Yeah, you're, you use a lot of different keywords that we wouldn't really expect. Uh, I think amalgamation is one interesting kind of lens yes. that you put on it. Uh, yes. Polyculturalism is another one. Can you tell us how you had to kind of conjure up new new frameworks, I suppose, as a way to see both of these literatures together? Right. Well, it wasn't so much about conjuring new frameworks so much as um, making sure I made clear the sort of various ways that um, race and ethnicity were being defined in the in this time period. So amalgamation um, is one that Zangwill, Israel Zangwill, talks about, um, this idea of all of the races sort of in the U.S. merging together um, and this sort of elimination of um, racial or ethnic differences or cultural differences. Um, but, you know, that there were actually multiple discourses surrounding um ideas of citizenship and inclusion, right? So you have you have talk about things like amalgamation. You have Randolph Warren talking about transnational Americanism. Um, and then you have more sort of these ideas of contemporary scholars and critics like Vijay Prashad when he talks about uh, polycultural, oh, I'm sorry, Robin D.G. Kelly when he, mm. talks about, when he talks about that. Um, and this idea that um, cultures and race are never discrete, right? They're always sort of bleeding into each other. Um, We're always sort of drawing our identities from multiple sources, even when we think we're only drawing it from one. Um, And so it's a matter of, in the book, trying to lay out all, as many of the possibilities as, you know, as there are out there for thinking about racial identity and the ways that these authors that I'm studying um, make use of them or reject them or, or whatever it is. Um, and what is the kind of dominant point of view that your book is attempting to respond to? I, I mean, how do people usually view um, these kind of encounters? Right. I, I mean, I saw the book initially as a kind of like I like you mentioned in your intro as a corrective, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there is this popular narrative of Afro-Asian antagonism, right? The model minority versus the marred minority kind of idea. Um, And that plays out in real world ways, in material ways, conflicts between communities um, of which the Los Angeles, you know, uprising is one example. Um, But there's also this other narrative out there of this kind of, um, well, anyone who's experienced racism will understand what, you know, we should be able to form alliances based solely on the fact that, you know, certain communities are victims of racism or historically have been um, victim victims of racism. And I think both narratives end up obviously flattening out any of the kinds of different ways, the differences both, you know, within communities or between communities historically, um, and also the ways that communities responded to those kinds of um, obstacles. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really about trying to, you know, complicate um, what has tended to be a kind of um, grand narrative, as I call it, um, and sort of see, well, it's, a, it's actually much, much more complicated and responses mm-hmm. between the two communities were much, were really different and ran the spectrum. Um, and so it's difficult to say, you know, with any kind of certainty, 
this is what it was like. Well, this is what the Afro-Asian relationship was like in the 19 teens, let's say. Um, and I do, I, you know, I do point out in the coda of the book, it's important also to take these lessons into the late 20th and early 21st century, mm-hmm. that there is no easy narrative now. Um, and even though things seem to be, you know, getting better, uh, interracial relations in some ways are at, at a high point, you could argue, mm-hmm. especially between Asians and blacks, um, that this isn't necessarily a progress narrative, right? So, um, we're not building necessarily on the, on the, on the mistakes or lessons of the past, just things kind of ebb and flow, right? Mm-hmm. Things, there's a sort of pendulum swing to things. Um, so yeah, so if that answers your question. Yeah, I think the the historical period is quite fascinating for that, particularly. Uh, th- we could just move right into the first chapter on that note. Sure. sure. Um, because this is all before, you know, model minority right. uh, stereotype. Um, it's also before Japan was really seen as a big bad guy, right. I guess. Um, right. And a lot of, uh, especially black intellectual leaders, kind of sided with Japan as the as a kind That's of savior of people of color. That's right. Um, but you you compare, especially the early, in the first chapter, uh, the two encounters with uh, the Negro problem and the Yellow Peril. Yes. Uh, how, does, how do those two, uh, I guess we could call them stereotypes or ideas, attitudes, how did those two impact each other and uh, help define what it meant to be American? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, like I said, it goes back to that, that, that sort of really anxiety-producing discourse about inclusion, right? So this idea that the Chinese, the yellow peril is referring, I think, specifically to the Chinese, but, um, mm. and then the Negro problem, right? That one of them is often positioned, the yellow peril is often positioned as a sort of, um, as a foreign issue, right? We have foreigners, we have for- these foreign Chinese, these alien Chinese coming to the U.S. Um, what are we going to do with them? Um, how do we get them out of here or whatever? And then the um, the Negro problem, which is seen as a domestic issue, right? Um, African-Americans, uh, former slaves are emancipated. Reconstruction is over. Um, they're beginning, you know, the great migration is underway. What are we going to do sort of, what is the country going to do with um, the potential for racial violence and hatred towards that group? But in point of fact, you know, those things are very much tied together, right? It's mm-hmm. not just a foreign problem and then a domestic problem or an issue for foreign policy and then domestic policy, Um because, of course, you know, you have uh, the Chinese being imported coolie labor, the idea of coolie labor being imported into the South after the end of slavery, um, and the Chinese as a potential, as a viable option for replacing slave labor, right? Um, and then you have um, African Americans moving to the West, to California, where the issues surrounding the Chinese were much, much more prevalent um, and sort of you know, participating in yellow peril discourse, um, saying we need to get rid of the Chinese. They, you know, they, for this, for similar reasons as, um, as the white population, right. It imperils white laborers. Um, it, 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 they're, they're on Christian, like all, all of those kinds of issues. So even though the two discourses often seem separate, you know, what you, what you see sort of in the history and in the literature is they're all merging together. Like the, the rationale for one and the, um, is very similar to the rationale for the other, or there's all this kind of overlapping going on between the two discourses. Um, and that was happening, you know, all over the country, really, or certainly in those parts of the country, like in the Deep South or in the West, where you had populations of Chinese and African-Americans meeting, um, interacting with each other, competing for jobs, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, I think it might be important just to outline uh, who exactly like which exactly Asian-American populations we're talking about. Because yeah, yeah. Uh, like you said, Yellow Peril maybe had more to do with Chinese. And then a right. lot of the Orientalism at the time, at least 
right. in the beginning was more towards Japanese and then became more towards Chinese. Right. Uh, but there were also like Filipinos uh, around. Right? There were Koreans who were, came as Japanese, you know, under the subject of Japanese empire. Right. Uh, did you find uh so are you dealing with those at all? Or are you mostly interested in the Chinese and Japanese? Or was there even a, distingu- a way to distinguish them for a lot that of the literature? A, yeah, that is a really, really great question and actually a very problematic question or problematic one to answer. Mm. So, you know, we use the term Asian American and we understand what that means. But that's obviously a, a social, fi- you know, it's a political fiction, right? That term mm. emerged in the late 60s um, as a sort of way of of gathering political coalition together, right, around issues. Um, uh, but actually, you know, point of fact, <laughs> in the um, in the early 20th century, that term doesn't mean anything, Asian American. Mm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I really, really, really struggled with in the book was sort of delimit- like trying to figure out, okay, who am I including as a quote-unquote Asian American in the Asian American, you know, in the parts of the book where I want to talk about Asian American issues. And in point of fact, I end up speaking mostly of Chinese, uh, authors of Chinese descent, right? The Eaton mm. Sisters, um, Wu Ting Fang, and the exception is Young Hill Kang, um, mm. who is of Korean descent and was a subject of the Japanese empire uh, because of when he was writing. Um, but that, I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't talk in the book about the condition of, let's say, Filipinos in the United States or the particular issues, the historical and political issues, you know, that are attendant with that uh, group. I'm not speaking about the Japanese, right? Um, and part of, I, I don't know if I talk about this in the book, actually, but part of my rationale for this was simply, um, as you were mentioning, you know, the the Japanese were seen as being um, an imperial force, like an equal, right? Mm. Almost an equal, at least with the U.S. in terms of civilizing and colonizing um, Asia. And so there's a very different kind, there's more kind of um, political power or more, more sort of cultural power associated with the Japanese in the United States um, during this time period, then there would be like, let's say in the ni- late 1930s or 1940s. Um, and so in fact, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter of the book, uh, just to give you a, a quick example, when the movie, the cheat was released in 1915, uh, the film, that, um, by Cecil B, uh, by, mm. I'm sorry, by is it Cecil B. DeMille or G.W. Griffiths. I'm, I think it's Cecil B. DeMille. Um, when it was released, the, the villain, right, um, is a Japanese national living in the United States. But the consulate complained um, so much and so vociferously that when Paramount re-released the film a few years later, they turned him into a Burmese aristocrat. So, you know, Japan <laughs> is Japan is the one sort of country in Asia that can exercise some kind of um, influence, right, over, you, you know, in this very minor area of a film, but also the gentleman's agreement, all of these things in a way that a country like, China or a country slash colony like Korea can't. Um, so there's a kind, there's a difference. There's all kinds of ethnic differences within American Orientalism that I think are, are really important to point out. Mm. But I am definitely in the book just focusing on mostly the Chinese with this, with also with, with this one Korean author as well. Um, so it's not something I, I get into in the book, but it's certainly something that needs a lot more, you know, analysis and explication uh, because depending on, you know, which national group you belong to, which ethnic group you belong to, that dictated a lot of what, you know, how you were treated within the U.S. Um, so that's an important distinction to make. Mm. 
And uh, also in your first chapter, you do focus, uh, you mentioned this earlier, that one thing that brought you to this kind of uh, discourse was the Plessy versus Ferguson case. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a bit, of, you, you mentioned the, some other cases that are very foundational to Asian American studies, the right. Ozawa versus the United States, uh, Thin yes. versus U.S. Yes. All, all these court cases that were, uh, what we would see now as Asian Americans were denied citizenship or naturalization. Right. Um, what, uh, and then we come across Plessy versus Ferguson, which is quite different from those others. Can you tell us how that influenced you and uh, what it is about that case? Right. Well, I mean, I what I think is interesting about Plessy versus Ferguson is, you know, it's the foundational case for um, for segregation, right, for Jim Crow. It's not overturned until the mid-50s with Brown versus Board of Education. So this is the basis for U.S. racial organiz- social and political racial organization for 50 years. And it's understood, and rightly so, um, as being a case about black civil rights. Um, the case, you know, it's about Homer Plessy, who is... Um, a biracial man, you know, and he boards a, a, a train in, in Louisiana and it was a, it was a stage case. So he informed the conductor, I'm black, you know, um, by law and he refused to leave and he was, you know, forced to pay a fine. So that's what triggered the case. Um, but what's fascinating, if you look at, at both the majority opinion and the, the dissenting opinion, um, is that they both justices talk extensively about the Chinese. And they're using the Chinese, though, in very different ways um, to talk about whether or not you know, African-Americans should be included or excluded. Um, so in the, in the affirming opinion, right, in the majority opinion, you have Justice uh, Brown talking about um, – talking about the fact that there's this kind of natural antipathy between whites and blacks Mm -hmm. and that, you know, we can't overcome those with social conventions and we shouldn't have to, right? Mm -hmm. As long as the the accommodation for blacks and whites in these train cars are separate but equal, you know, then then that that suits the Constitution just fine. So he's talking about this kind of, you know, this inherent essential antagonism between white and black, right? It's biological. It's kind of, it's unexplainable. You can't, you can't overcome it by just putting a black person and a white person together in a train car. Um, and what the dissenting opinion brings the Chinese in, I mean, the reason why uh, the Chinese come from the dissenting opinion is because the justice is trying to say, well, African-Americans have been, a, well, black Americans have been a part of U.S. history for, you know, many, many decades. They're Christian, right? So there's this kind of cultural argument going on. Uh, they participated in the Civil War. Um, we fought, you know, we, we understand there's this kind of affinity between the two groups that is based on a, hist- a shared historical experience and trauma. And um, uh, what the justice is saying about the Chinese is they haven't done any of that, right? They just came in. They're totally foreign. Um, so they're, the Chinese are being used in very, very different ways in both of those cases. And it's, you know, a case about, you know, how we should look at African-Americans, but you cannot make the case either pro or con without talking about the Chinese, basically, right? Um, so that's what I mean when I talk about triangulation often in the book. Like, there has to be this kind of third position in order to understand what is often viewed as an oppositional relationship between white and black or white and Asian. There has to be that third figure in there to sort of make sense of it. Um, and so that case, you know, I think is is interesting and telling in that it's talking about black-white relations in this country, but it's doing so by bringing in, by sort of contextualizing that within a much broader framework of, of interracial um, connections. Um, and so, and the other court cases, you know, um, the Thin case um, and Ozawa, 
both of those happened, I think, within a year of each other. I mean, and both of those, the, you know, Osawa lost and Thin lost. And what's also interesting, and I think Ian Haley Lopez talks about this in, in his book about the prerequisite cases and about, about these cases generally, um, the, the Supreme Court is remarkably flexible um, in justifying its exclusion, mm-hmm. you know, of, of these groups. So for Ozawa, Ozawa's rationale was, you know, I am by definition white. My skin is whiter, you know, than um, many, many Europeans, right? Um, and also I've lived in this country. I think he'd been, he was married to a white woman. Um, so both culturally and sort of physically, physiologically, he's talking mm-hmm. about whiteness. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court case, I mean, the, 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 the opinion that goes against it says, well, you know, we're talking about a kind of popular understanding of whiteness, right? We're not talking mm-hmm. about actual just literal skin color or whether or not you lived here. We're talking about kind of no one would look at a Japanese man and say, yes, that man is white. Right? <laughs> um, and then in the case of Finn, because he was, I believe he was a Sikh. Um, mm-hmm. he's Indian. Yeah, Indian but- Sikh. Yeah, and so he um, was arguing, I'm Caucasian, right? Um, that this is, so they're both arguing, they're arguing about, they're using different kinds of arguments for what constitutes whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Arguments that have been used, you know, in racist discourse in the past, right? And they're saying, they're, they're sort of um, appropriating it to suit their own, to suit the case for them. Um, but in each instance, the, the court comes back and says, well, that isn't, you know, what we really mean by when we say white, Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it is this kind of it's this interesting it's this interesting moment where the, the court is looking for some kind of justification, whether it's biological or social or cultural or popular to sort of be able to define what it means to be white. And they can never you know, it's never quite successful. Um, it comes down to, well, it's kind of common sense. Right. Mm. It, it doesn't if it doesn't look like a white person, then, then he's just not a white person. Um, and so, you know. I think those cases, I mean, it's also interesting because in those cases, both of those plaintiffs are not saying exclusion is wrong, right? Or exclusion is unconstitutional. What they're saying is my group should be included. You can go ahead and exclude all these other people, but I want to, you know, I want my group to be, you know, one of the ones who, you know, one of the groups that is included. Um, So it isn't so much striking a blow against racism so much as it is, you know, let's shift that line of exclusion a little bit further out, or, you know, far off enough, far, far out enough so that my group can be included um, into, the, into the citizenry. It's quite fascinating, but just the way that you observe these cases and uh, how that makes us think differently about the period. For I've always thought about this period as like a, you know, dominance of social Darwinism and yeah. uh, scientific, scientific positivism. So race was always, you know, known strictly anthropologically. Right. Uh, and then you have like common sense being invoked all, all the time. <laughs> it's really it's interesting. Right, the popular, like this isn't a popular definition of race. So, yeah, I mean, even in the mid-20s when I think both of those cases were tried, Ozawa and Dent, um, there was increasingly like, increasing realization we can't use science actually to justify racial difference, right? There is no biological. Um, you'd still have people talking about biological differences, but the science is beginning to actually sort of undermine um, racist discourse in that way. And so it's constantly, and I talk a little bit about this in the, in the first chapter, there's the lines are always shifting, right? Mm. There's never just one justification and that's it. It's not just um, biology or citizenship. There's always something else, right? There's another barrier. Um, and that's what I mean when I say identity in, the, in, in this time period is extremely flexible mm-hmm. and relational. Um, so, 
Yeah. Uh, to be honest, one of the reasons I really wanted you on this podcast also was because uh, you're the first literary person that we've had, uh, <laughs> and I'm in the Department of English. So I, when I looked at your book, I've taught almost all the texts that you uh, look at, and so I was very excited to read about them. Um, and then I was confused when I was in uh, the second chapter because almost like I got so taken away by your descriptions of trains <laughs> and I, I was like, I'm reading this for the literature and, but the train is just so amazing the way you put it. I, yes. I feel like the train seems to capture that everyday, uh, you know, the common sense racial yeah. encounter. Uh, can you describe what was about trains that, um, that did that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the train as well. In fact, that's my, my next book project is, mm. is on the railroad, but, um, so it has its seeds in this chapter, but, um, but I just thought it was really, you know, the sort of uh, the fact what initially seems like a coincidence, right? That Plessy versus Ferguson, um, it's a court case about segregation. It's it's a train. It's a, it's set on the train, right? And then you have the Mirror of Tradition um, by Charles Chestnut, and then um, America through the spectacles of an Oriental diplomat by Wu Ting Fang, um, and they're basically reenactments of of Plessy, right? Um, there's this kind of scene on a train. There's a Chinese man um, who's, you know, in the mix somehow, part of the conversation before we have the the black man who's sort of taken to the colored car. Um, and so what I think is fascinating about the train is that, um, and I talk about this in, the, in that chapter, is, you know, first of all, we don't ride trains probably um, nearly as much as they did in the early mm-hmm. 20th century, but this was a hugely... Um, you know, it's a common sort of everyday occurrence. Everybody rode the trains, but at the same time, you know, it's a technology that's relatively new and it, it carries a tremendous amount of symbolic national baggage with it, right? It's the transcontinental railroad. We have Walt Whitman talking about it um, in his poetry, right? This idea of manifest destiny, the West, the frontier. Um, it's all of those things in terms of um, the symbol of the country, right, of, of American progress, right, this tremendous technological feat that only Americans could have done. Um, and even though we were behind the Europeans and laying down track and all of these things. Um, but uh, so, you know, when you have when you have this kind of space that carries with it all of this kind of national import, but at the same time is an everyday space, like everybody knows what it's like to ride a train, mm-hmm. even in the early 21st century, um, you were bound to have these kinds of confrontations or conflicts or interactions that cause, you know, the subject to question his or her understanding of, you know, his or her identity, place in the world, place in society, all of these kinds of things. So in many ways, I'm saying the train is the perfect space, right, to, to sort of work that out. It's compact. It's supposed to be a microcosm of society. And yet it is... Um, in its apportionment of space, we have class distinctions, you have gender distinctions, you have a Jim Crow car, um, you have conductors going around trying to police, right, these spaces, you have porters who are trying to serve the passengers on these on these trains. And so there is this kind of confluence of all these issues surrounding um, race, class, gender, you know, as well as labor, the labor of actually building the train as well and keeping it running, um, all meeting in this one particular space, um, and so, you know, I think for that reason, if you, you know, we can talk about this a little later if you'd like, but, you know, lots of scenes actually of racial confrontation happen on the mm-hmm. train. Lots of scenes of class, class confrontation happen on a train. I mean, it's just a ubiquitous part of, you know, life in the late 19th and 
in the late 19th and early 20th century. But like I said, it carries a tremendous amount of uh, baggage with it as well. And can you speak to how uh, the train was then represented in African American, uh, African American, and Asian American literature? Uh, you used Charles Ches- Charles Chestnut's *The Mirror of Tradition*, yes, and then uh, Wu Tingfang's *America Through the Spectacles of an Oriental Diplomat*. How did those two texts kind of reflect that experience? Yeah, they're both. It's interesting because what I the scenes I look at in both of those texts are very small parts of you know, much much bigger works, right? Um, I think in Marrow Tradition, it's maybe five or six, seven pages, um, where you have the protagonist of the novel, uh, Dr. Miller. He's African American, um, and um, and then in East Coast West, you have the diplomat Wu Fang, who's at a train station in D.C. in a segregated train station, and he's being told by the porter which space he needs to occupy. But it's again a very small part of the of the book as a whole. And part of what I am arguing in those texts is. Um, these moments, these are also the, the moments of racial, interracial contact, right? Where you have the African-American doctor interacting with the Chinese laundryman, um, or you have the, um, the Chinese diplomat sort of looking at segregated spaces and seeing, you know, blacks in one space and then whites in another. Um, and so part of what I'm saying about that makes these scenes so important is they actually interrupt the political mm-hmm. agenda of both of the books, right? They, they show them to be moments of... Um, there's shown to be moments of confusion, right, where there's sort of the text sort of jars on itself. It's like actually like the train collides or there's a collision on the train. Mm. Um, and it's a moment that the texts actually have both texts have difficulty explaining away. So they can't in the case of Wu Fang, he um, doesn't really talk about racial segregation very much in the book as a whole, in the memoir as a whole. This is the one time he talks about it. Um, and he immediately, it's almost as if he doesn't know what to do with it, and he mm. immediately moves on to another subject. There's no kind of processing or what is this, what might this mean um, for American identity or American politics. He just moves on. It, and oh, I'm sorry. He, he gets put in the white part of the train, is that right? Uh, but, he, you know, what's interesting is he's told, mm. told by the porter um, where to sit. So it mm. isn't as if he makes that selection. He does not understand. And that's also part of it. This is a memoir in which the, in which the writer, you know, he's a diplomat. He's from a wealthy family. Um, he's extremely self-assured. He's very social. He always knows, you know, what he's doing. And this is a moment where he does not know what he's doing. He actually does not know where he belongs. Um, and it's the only moment in the memoir that is like that, where he actually has to be told what to do. Mm. Um, and a, a similar thing with the, with the chestnut. This is a moment in which suddenly uh, Miller is confronted, you know, not only with his own marginality, right, because he's put in the Jim Crow car, but he's actually also thrown in with working class blacks who are coming home from a day's work. He doesn't identify with them at all. Uh, he sees a black maid who's able to ride in the first class train car that he was just forced to abandon because she's clearly in the she's clearly there in a capacity mm-hmm. as a servant as opposed to him who is. You know, he's a doctor, he's riding as a passenger, he paid his full freight. Um, and it's also this kind of uncomfortable moment in the novel in which he's shown, you know, in, in which his sort of own class uh, prejudices, as well as gender prejudices, all of these things sort of come to the fore. And then once he gets off the train, he can forget about them. That doesn't mean the text necessarily forgets about them. But, you know, it's a book that's really about sort of this idea of um, racial injustice, right, against blacks. But at that moment, 
there is this kind of, there is this, it is a jarring moment, right? It doesn't fit in necessarily um, with what else, with whatever else the book is sort of propounding politically. Um, and so that's why I talk about it as, as a moment of estrangement, right? Not only for the characters who are estranged from themselves, who don't understand the situation they find themselves in, but also for the texts, for the novel and the memoir. These are strange moments within, within both of the texts as well. Mm-hmm. These jarring moments you mentioned kind of reach over to the the third chapter, which is about the Eaton sisters. Yes. Uh, and I have to say, I lo- I've teached both Edith and Winifred Eaton. I think yes. they're just fascinating. Yes. As you say, if, if Asian American literature was like, what is it, a telenovela or soap opera, right, exactly. they would be the stars. Right? That's right. Um, and they continue to be fascinating. And in the way you look at them, too, you look at... Uh, the way that they represent Jamaica, which is a, a part of that I've never really seen people write about right uh so how did uh, first of all could you introduce uh, who these wonderful people are the Eaton <laughs> sisters for our audience um yes, and then yes. tell us uh, why you focus on their writings about jamaica yes well um edith eaton um her pen name was sweet and far and um she is uh, she and her sister winifred were biracial um their father was british their mother was Chinese, but educated in England. Um, they were born in Canada, uh, lived in Jamaica, and then um, both of them did live most of their adult life in the United States. So they are really, truly hemispheric writers. I mean, when we're talking about hemispheric studies or transnational American studies, they absolutely fit the bill. Um, and what's interesting is, and I, as you said, I allude to this in the book, there, um, Edith has been canonized and in some ways, um, yeah, canonized as the sort of um, resistant Asian-American figure, right? She elected to um, embrace her Chinese identity at a time when the Chinese were obviously hated and reviled and feared. She wrote sympathetically and extensively about Chinatown, um, about experiences in Chinatown. Her stories are about um, Chinese characters. Um, They're sentimental, but again, very, very sympathetic. Um, her sister, her younger sister, Winifred, uh, whose pen name was Onoda Watana, uh, had a very different trajectory as a writer. So she actually chose to pass as a Japanese I think countess or something like that. I mean, it, she chose to pass herself off as a member of the Japanese aristocracy. Um, and this would have been in the 1900s. Her first pub- book was published in the late 1800s, actually. And she's the first um, published author of Asian descent in North America, Winifred is. Um, but because she chose a Japanese identity at a time when I, as I said, the Jap- there was more sort of protection afforded to the Japanese in the U S because of the relative power of Japan, um, as a colonizing influence in Asia, uh, the, the sort of narrative has been that Winifred is the sellout, right? She, Mm -hmm. Um, passed herself off as Japanese. She made a ton of money. She worked in Hollywood, which is like the ultimate sin. Um, and Edith is kind of the resistant hero, right? So, you know, that is a part of whenever you want to talk about the Eaton sisters, you have to, you have to come up against that fact, right? That you have this very powerful discourse of authenticity working around both of them, um, in which Edith always comes out on top because, you know, Winifred, obviously, I think also she renounced her Japanese identity once it became inconvenient, which would have been circa 1941, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then chose she was wealthy at that point and, and, you know, passed as a white woman at that point. Um, and so, it, it's interesting to think about the two sisters just because they encapsulate so many of the issues that Asian American studies 
you know, was initially very, very interested in, right? This question of authenticity, who can claim the Asian American experience? Well, obviously the woman who, you know, embraced sort of her Chinese American identity, that's the person we want, you know, as the kind of, as the fount of Asian American literature, as opposed to the woman who pretended to be Japanese when it was convenient for her, you know, and then, and then dropped it when it wasn't. Um, so that kind of discourse of authenticity is very much a part of, of, um, of any conversation about the Eaton sisters. But, you know, what's interesting to me is when they're in Jamaica, um, their sense of themselves is again called very much called into question because of the presence of, um, of, of blacks, right. That they, are suddenly because both of them are actually able to pass as white. Um, both of the sisters are. Um, they again have this kind of moment of how do I define myself? You know, not just you know as um, a Canadian woman living in the colonies, right, moving from one colonial backwater essentially to another, um, but also as someone who claims this kind of. Chinese identity in the case of Edith or this kind of, um, she calls it foreign and exotic kind of identity. Um, uh, uh, Winifred does in her memoir. Mm -hmm. She never names herself in that memoir as being Chinese. She just says my mother was from a faraway land, right? She kind of implies it, but never comes out and says it. Mm. Um, and so Jamaica is this kind of, again, this moment of, as, as you pointed out, like a stranging moment for them, right? Where they're wrenched out of the kind of um, social situation that they understood and put into something entirely different and have to define themselves according to the, to the people around them. Hmm. Yeah. And then in the, when, when you're analyzing uh, Nell Larson's book, Quicksand, it seems like that's a very different, it's not so yes. much a, a rupture of identity, right? It seems to like uh, her main character uh, seems to fetishize Oriental. At least that's the reading that most people have, right? That yeah. she's fetishized. Helga Crane is fetishizing yeah. Oriental yeah. objects. But you have a very different reading. Can you tell us about that and how that might yeah. be different it, from the rupture experience? Yeah, yeah the, the book is just filled with descriptions of Oriental objects, um, beautiful Oriental objects, right? Like uh, tea cabinets and jade and lacquer and crepe mm -hmm. uh, de chine and all of this. Kind of, it's very, very noticeable when you read it. Um, and the, I think, you know, what I want to say about it is that it isn't just an, another example of sort of American Orientalism, right? I mean, there were actually many Harlem Renaissance authors who incorporated these kinds of descriptions of the mm -hmm. Orient into their writing. Alf Thurman is one I'm thinking of off the top of my head. But um, for Larson or for Helga, I should say, you know, I'm arguing there is a kind of political motive behind all of this chinoiserie and Japanese made, right? That it's actually Helga trying to flee the sort of... Um, to, to flee sort of racist and sexist notions of black womanhood in the early 20th century that said black women were, you know, um, sexually de deviant, mm -hmm. right? That they had no morals, that they were mules, or that they were completely asexual, right? That over-sexualized them, hyper-sexualized them, um, presented them as emasculating in some kind of way. And that what, you know, what Oriental, what Oriental objects represent in that book is a desire to escape history, right? Because Oriental objects actually have, they're, they're radically decontextualized. That's mm -hmm. why when you see, what I mean by that is if you see a woman, you'll see it today, um, using chopsticks as hair, like to put up her hair, mm -hmm. you know, or something like that. Uh, Karen Tayyamashita talks about that quite humorously in <laughs> Tropic of Orange, right? That mm -hmm. it's, it's unhygienic, like it's disgusting. But that's exactly what it is, right? You're taking something that's an everyday object, has no real... Um, 
symbolic meaning, right? But then turning it into an object of beauty, right? Taking, robbing it of its sort of use. Um, and so that of its history, right? It's whatever it is. And so that's what Helga is longing for as a black woman. She doesn't want to be seen as, you know, African-American woman with this potential discourse of, you know, sexual depravity around her. She would much rather be just seen as an object of art, no history, Mm. right? No kind of context. And in a way it just shows how stark, I mean, it's a depressing novel anyway. Yeah. It, it shows how stark the, the sort of options are for black women, right? You could either be um, essentially, you know, like the women that she works with, the fellow teachers that she works with at the beginning of the novel at Naxos, right? Which is like mm-hmm. this tusky, sort of upright, uptight, <laughs> um, sexually repressed, right? Because you're, you're countering the stereotype so, so vigorously, right? That you end up, of course, you're still enslaved to it in a certain way, mm. which she rejects. Or you can turn yourself into this kind of object of art. And then hopefully, I think her hope is, you know, sort of eliminate any of that kind of chatter about sexual deviancy or sexual, you know, over-sexualizing. That that this will somehow protect her identity or protect her subjectivity. Mm. And of course, that doesn't work at all. You know, it's complete myth or it's completely untrue that that she's able to do that. But that's, that's the hope, right, that 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 those descriptions hold out, that there will be some kind of, that there is some kind of escape from that discourse mm-hmm. um, that racializes and sexualizes black women like that. This hope of escape is, is actually a prominent theme in your book, I think. And I yeah. don't know if we want to call it that because uh, it changes, it seems, uh, for every author you look at. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and I mean, we know Nell Larson herself, uh, she was, I think the last book she was working on that she never got published was only, there was no black people in it as far as we know. Yes. Uh, and she also traveled to Europe quite a few times. So you have this kind of escape, you could say from history, but also from the American nation state and the racializations yes. that take place yes. there. Yes. Uh, in the beginning of your book, you talk about this as a, as what you, you give it the term post-national awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say that there's, that that can lead to a lot of different places. Um, right. Right. You get that. You get. You talk about it more in your fifth chapter with uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, uh, Dark, Dark Princess, and Young Hill Kong's uh, East Goes West. Can you describe how that kind of post-national awareness uh, work kind of comes from? How it envisions something alternative to the nation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually very interesting um, because. I don't know how many of your listeners will have, have read W.E.B. Du Bois' Dark Princess, but it's it's a crazy book. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it shifts genres. Um, it starts out in a kind of um, realism mode, and then it moves into, I mean, then it moves into, it, it is in this realism mode, and then it shifts into this kind of high fantasy at the end, um, almost science fiction-y. <laughs> um, there's, like, romance. There's there's an epistolary section. So it shifts, you know, all in all different kinds of ways. Um, and Young Hill Kong's book, which is a memoir, you know, sort of a, a fictionalized memoir, um, just is um, it's uh, it's picaresque, right? He's just mm-hmm. moving around the country, kind of trying to figure out, trying to find work, trying to get um, educated, trying to meet friends, like all of these different kinds of. So they're very different novels, but part of what I'm saying, both of them are working towards, is this idea of um, that basically, if the nation wants to exclude groups of people, if this is how we define nationhood based on who can't be a citizen of the nation, Mm -hmm. then we need to figure out another model for um, understanding sort of geopolitical organization. The nation doesn't work, right? It's Mm -hmm. inherently corrupt, racist. Um, And what's interesting from a literary standpoint, in some ways this is the most literary 
analysis that I do in the book is that the novel as a genre, of course, is most closely affiliated with the, the emergence of the nation state, right? So that the novel and the nation sort of grew up together. Um, and so what I find interesting is both of these the, both of these books have been called very bad novels. Um, and I think that's actually appropriate because, you know, they are actually trying to rework um, this genre, you know, as a way of thinking about reworking, you know, the nation state. Um, and so at the end of Dark Princess, you have this kind of messianic um, scene, tableau, where um, the, the Indian princess and the African-American hero are brought together. Their child is going to be the messiah, it's implied mm-hmm. for the new world um, that's going to the new world order that's going to emerge. Um, you have like um, it's set in Virginia, but you have men in um, in loincloths, you know, chanting over the child. And, you know, so it's a very exotic and very strange scene. Um, and then the end of East Coast West is um, is actually a nightmare, literally a nightmare. The main character is having a nightmare in which he's locked in a basement about to be lynched. Um, he's with a bunch of African-American laborers, but he's also thinking about his childhood in Korea at the same time. So the, those grounds kind of merge together, the domestic and the and the foreign. Um, and so they're very much about sort of how do we get out of the nightmare, right, of nationhood or the nation state. But, you know, these are not necessarily I, I take point pains to point out these are not necessarily viable alternatives. Right. This kind of nightmare state of fear and nostalgia for the past or alternatively this, um, weird, this weird kind of, um, messianic vision of time and space in which you have a prince, right. In which you're, you have a crowned King essentially, Mm -hmm. um, which is weird in a book that's about, you know, sort of anti-black racism that blood like royalty comes back into the, into the picture. Um, and so, you know, they, they want to imagine, um, mm-hmm. that, that post-national space, but they can't name what it is. They can't describe what it is, um, which I think is all the more interesting, right? That, mm-hmm. that they're so entrenched in that thinking they can't imagine an alternative, really. Uh, just a quick follow Another uh, big theme that I saw in your book that you don't uh, seem to be uh, that explicit about in the beginning, at least, <laughs> is uh, this kind of tension between the the kind of everyday moments of interact of racial interaction like on the train yeah and then you have these representations these, these uh very intimate representations like in dark princess yeah uh and then in the very beginning of the book uh we haven't mentioned this yet but you talk about uh, uh cartoons of, mm-hmm. of uh marriage <laughs> between right. black men right. especially in chinese women right uh is there something about that kind of intimacy that leads it to a different uh space politically socially than than the kind of everyday encounter yeah, I hadn't thought of that, actually. Um, but I think that is right, that there are different kinds of encounters. I, I tend to just sort of label them as encounters and not try to parse them mm. out in the book as much. But I think what, there's some, really something to what you're saying, right? You have the kind of the everyday, right, the train, but you also have this kind of... But, you know, when we, we see the kind of... And in the, what you're referring to, the cartoon at the beginning of the book depicts a black man, you know, it's a stereotype, it's a minstrel representation, but mm-hmm. a black man and a Chinese woman marrying, right? And the, the lyrics that go with this image, it was a song originally in a Broadway play, talk about um, how that this union is going to change all of creation, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of apocalyptic sort of um, image with that song. And then, of course, in Dark Princess, you have actually a coming apocalypse of some kind, right? Some kind of messianic revolution happening. Um, but that is also speaking, you know, to the anxiety of, 
you know, this idea of interracial mingling, not just on a political or social mm-hmm. level, but, you know, on a, on a, on a personal, like a, you know, on, on the level of the domestic the family, right? What will happen um, to the U.S. as a nation, to its standing in the world, if we, if it allows this kind of intermingling. And it's really anxiety, of course, about, it's also anxiety, of course, about, um, uh, white, black, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, intermingling or white Asian, right. We have all these kinds of laws forbidding, um, marriage between different, you know, between all these groups. In fact, you know, white women could lose their citizenship, I think in the twenties, mm-hmm. if they married a Chinese man, right. So that you actually, um, that there's that white womanhood, white womanhood is the other part of the book that I don't highlight as much, but there's constant, it's fears about the U S nation state and it's sort of continuance are always figured as, you know, protecting white women from Chinese men or from black men or, you know, the Eaton sisters or Winifred eating, Eaton wanting the sort of protections of white womanhood to define who she is as a political subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that is really true that, 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 that kind of, those interactions reveal a lot more, I mean, sort of get to the heart of the anxieties about what it is that we're, what it is we're really doing when we let um, the Chinese in, or if we allow African-American equal rights, it -hmm. will lead to, you know, amalgamation, right? It'll lead to sort of interracial coupling. And that is seen as sort of the end or beginning of the end potentially. Mm. Um, and even in Du Bois's book, right? That, that it's a good, be- it's a new beginning, right? But it's, that is what will lead to the new world order is this uh, coupling between Matthew and Cotillia, right? The Indian princess and the black man. So, so, uh, so speaking of the new world order, uh, how, how might you uh, see this book uh, in our current context? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on African-American and Asian-American counters now, uh, we could, I mean, in the context of neoliberalism, war and terror, uh, the prison yeah. state, uh, you do talk about Obama a bit in the book as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, I think um, what we have to grapple with in the early 21st century is is this idea of neoliberalism, right? The kind of the ways in which racial identity can become commodified um, and not just commodified, um, commodified by by communities of colors themselves, right? I mean, at the end of the book, I talk about uh, Vijay Prashad railing against mm. Rush Hour, right? <laughs> um, which, tra- I mean, it's very much about stereotypes, right? Sambo, in terms of Chris Tucker, um, the sort of martial arts, asexual kung fu um, figure in Jackie Chan. But what we have to remember is those those actors were both executive producing that, that film mm-hmm. um, and obviously, you know, making money and, and, you know, they're earning their livelihood through it. And so there does, I think, however we look at, um, however we look at interracial relations in our contemporary moment, it has to take into account sort of these kinds of global circuits of capital, um, and how they're influencing, um, how they're influencing constructions of racial identity. You know, one of the articles I just finished is on Amy Chua's Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Mm. And I think she's a perfect example of that, right? She is, you know, the whole book is about ethnic identity. It's all Mm -hmm. about being a Chinese mother. Um, But at the same time, it's also um, transforming Chinese motherhood, Chinese maternity into um, some kind of value and her children, right? Her, her Chinese American children, um, are seen strictly as some kind of commodity that she has to produce. Um, and so I think, you know, when we think about racial identity in the early 21st century, that's one of the ways we have to think about it as this kind mm-hmm. of, it's part of commodity culture at this point. It, it, it cannot escape 
commodification, right? We can't talk about it outside of those sort of economic circuits or financial circuits at all. Um, it's deeply implicated in them, um, which, you know, maybe was the case in the early 21st century or the early 20th century, you know, the period I'm writing about um, to a certain extent. But, I mean, we're talking about like someone like Anoda Watana, Winifred Eaton's mm-hmm. obviously capitalizing on racial identity in a particular way, but it seems much more pervasive, right? It's It transcends all kind of national borders, class issues, all of those things. So um, that's one of the things I, I'm certainly keeping an eye out on or, or interested in. Um, in the contemporary moment. That sounds like a fascinating article. Uh, Amy Chua seems like a, kind of like the Eden sisters put together. Yes. In the sense that, you know, she can write very critical books, analyses of American empire and pluralism, right. and then do the same, and then do exactly what she's talking about. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting to read Battle Hymn, just as an aside, in relation to her academic writing, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it, they do fit together. She's talking about, um, she's talking about uh, multinational corporations and and how they can fill in for sort of um, basically how to make these kinds of multinational corporations more accepted into mm-hmm. these third world countries where they go and exploit labor and all of these sorts of things. So it's just it's interesting to look at the correlation. You you think one voice would be entirely different from the other. I mean in terms of tone they are very much, mm-hmm. but the message, right, is sort of very similar, like eerily similar. So except she's talking about it in terms of motherhood, mm-hmm. which makes it even more, you know, problematic and in many ways. Neoliberal as well on the yes. very personal level. Yes. Uh, one last question uh, before we go. I, uh, sure. What are your thoughts on your on your next book? What are you working on now? I think you said it was some, it was, had more to do with the train. So tell us about yes. that. Yes, yes. The next book um, is called The Racial Railroad, and I'm actually it, it, the scope of it is a little bit broader than um, than the Interracial Encounters book. Um, I'm looking at basically at why it is that the train is this space of interracial contact and interracial conflict um, and what it is, what conclusions we can draw about the nature of racial formation or racial identity in terms of space. So in other words, like how does the space that we occupy inform how we view, you know, our own identities in terms of race or class or gender and how we interact with people from other races. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's sort of theorizing the space of the train um, but also looking at a broader historical period. So going back to the uh, late 1800s and then actually coming up to the contemporary moment, um, one, of the te- one of the chapters I want to look at are um, contemporary depictions of the train, and actually there, there are a lot of them out there. Um, if you look at films like The Lone Ranger, which was just released this past summer, um, if you look at films like Unbreakable, um, what was the other one I wanted to talk about? Wild Wild West, which mm-hmm. is a film from the 1990s starring Will Smith. I mean, these are all interracial buddy movies mm-hmm. that in which the train is basically the setting of the film. And so mm-hmm. why is it that even in the 21st century or late 20th century, um, when we have other modes of transit that are much more common, popular, uh, easy, you know, whatever they are, the automobile certainly, why is it that popular culture or literary culture keeps going back to the railroad as this particular way of understanding um, racial identity. And so, um, yeah, so I'm really excited about it, actually, because once you start looking for trains, they're everywhere, uh, <laughs> even in your own physical landscape. Like, it's kind of amazing if, you'll, if you're driving through a city, um, 
you'll see abandoned railroad tracks um, or even terms like, oh, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Like mm. the railroad still really informs the way we think about ourselves, not just um, spatially, but also sort of as individuals, as subjects. Um, so I'm really, I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm particularly interested as well. There's a new film that's out. It's out in Korea. I know it's been released in some European countries called Snowpiercer. I don't know. If oh, yeah. It's a sci-fi film by, uh, yes. yeah. Yes. It's Korean post- sci-fi, yeah. Yes, post-apocalyptic world in which um, all the survivors are on a train. <laughs> and it's run on, it's a perpetual engine, so it never stops. But if you're in the back of the train, you're the poor, right? You're poor. And if you're at the front of the train, you're the rich. And so the film is all about the back of the train trying to get to the front of the train. And um, because of something, I don't know, it's, I, I think it's being distributed by Weinstein Pictures, but they haven't set a release date. So I'm mm. sort of waiting on that. I, I, I think it might I be think the, it might be a manga too, or, or a... It's a French. Um, it's a French graphic novel, but it's, right, yeah. it's not possible to purchase it here in the U.S. <laughs> um, in translation. And I don't read French, so, <laughs> so it doesn't quite work. But um, but yeah. So I mean, you know, like I said, it's it's everywhere in American literature, in American culture, in American film. Um, and I'm just getting just getting a handle on sort of the the sort of breadth and depth of the of the train um, in those venues. Okay, Julia, I think we're out of time for today. I want to thank you for being on the show. I, I really enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed it, too. Well, I, I very much did. Thank you for your questions. I appreciate them all. All right. Thank you so much. That was my interview with Dr. Julia Lee on her book, Interracial Encounters. If you'd like to hear another fascinating interview, I recommend the East Asian Studies Network. They have a recent interview with John DeMoa on his book, Reconstructing Bodies, Biomedicine, Health, and Nation Building in South Korea since 1945. I found this to be a very interesting uh, overlook of South Korea beauty standards, food standards that have been quite dominant and emergent since the U.S. military government in South Korea uh, since the Korean War. So I would suggest taking a look at that. And thank you again for listening to New Books in Asian American Studies. 